Welcome to the Jerusalem Lights Podcast with Rabbi Chaim Richman, whose goal is Torah for everyone. I'm your co-host, Jim Long, and now, Rabbi Chaim Richman. Shalom, Jim. Shalom, Jerusalem Lights listeners. Much shalom to you and, and all of, of Israel today. A couple of weeks that you have had, or more? Le- more than- much less, actually. It just seems like a long time. Yeah. But uh, it's what is amazing is how much... <clears throat> I don't know how many how many times the world has turned. By the way, I read an article in, in one of the science magazines that the Earth is now turning faster than ever before. Should we be worried about that? I don't know. So much has happened since we last spoke. Really uh, amazing kind of um, a fast forward that we're on. A fast forward to what is what I really want to talk to you about so here here is the thing is that friday was um friday was erev shabbat and then shabbat was actually tisha b'av which was mm-hmm. this amazing configuration of of this uh, kind of um <clears throat> transcendent um divine connection because it was really tisha b'av but we couldn't observe it because of shabbat and then the fast was deferred to sunday the thing is that on that on friday right before shabbat you know, uh, all the devices are shut off and we're heading to the synagogue and we're getting ready for Shabbat. And we, we get word from from people that uh, that we just started a major military operation. Mm-hmm. And, you know, everybody knows somebody whose who's, who's son has, was just called up, you know, it was a, a major military operation. So that Sunday, which was the the observance of Tisha B'Av, was the, actually the third day of the operation. What was it all about? It was called... Alota Shachar, which in Hebrew means basically dawn. And so the operation was nicknamed Breaking Dawn. But what was it all about? It was just so amazing. Can I talk to you about this? Our listeners are, as the expression goes, waiting with, with bated breath for your perspective. I want, I, it's important to me. It's important how many, to me. To how many rockets? Our, how many rockets now? Well, all together, a, a thousand. Altogether, about a thousand were fired towards Israeli population centers. But I, I want to explain, because it's so important to our listeners to have reliable perspective and news about what's going on in Israel. And the reason that that's so important is because, frankly, I don't know how else to put it, the mass media lies. There's no, there's no pleasant way to say it or to... Um, you know, to sugarcoat it, it's all basically lies. And I'll give you some examples. So what was this all about was, it was basically an operation to dismantle a terrorist organization operating from Gaza called Islamic Jihad. And it's so important that our listeners have this perspective and understand that there's a certain distinction between Hamas, which is a horrendous, monstrous terrorist organization that actually governs over Gaza mm-hmm. and Islamic Jihad, which is not in a in a governing position over Gaza. It is a non-governing terrorist organization. Therefore, it has no responsibility to the people of Gaza. But the important thing to understand, to understand even though Gaza is governed over by one big terrorist organization, which is Hamas, Islamic Jihad is an Iranian proxy. Yeah. Yeah. And this is so important to understand that Islamic Jihad is literally bankrolled and encouraged uh, and enabled and empowered by Iran. Iran. So yeah. it's an Iranian front. Literally, the the Gaza border is an Iranian front. And Iran is the thing, you see. Iran, Iran is the thing because they have set their sights on destroying Israel, like they say every every Monday and Thursday that that's their goal and they mean it, you know? So, so um, basically the idea is that the operation's goal was to disable Islamic Jihad. And um, apparently, according to the IDF uh, proclamations, that was accomplished in that uh, all of their leadership, their military leadership was, uh, was destroyed. Mm-hmm. The whole thing really started a little bit of background in that a, a leader of theirs um, closer to two weeks ago was arrested, or last week really, the beginning of last week was arrested. And then the terrorist group of Islamic Jihad sought basically to force Israel's hand, to extort Israel into releasing him by 
threatening violence to uh, soldiers and communities of civilians near the Gaza border. They were um, they were prepping and and um, putting into place anti-tank cells that were basically going to be opening fire. And so all those communities in uh, in the Gaza border area were living under threat. It was three or four days that all, that that basically it seemed like our entire position was like defensive. You know, it seemed yeah. like and people were upset. People were upset with the government. People were upset with the IDF because what this is all that we can do, basically, because we were all those communities were under curfew. Basically, the roads were closed, and you know the kids weren't able to go to school, and 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 all of those communities near the Gaza border were on high alert, but actually. It seems that those days were being used for preparation. I don't think people in the USA even understand what we're talking about. I don't think they understand what that, that we're talking about a situation in which, <clears throat> you know, we are constantly living under various attacks. Uh, occasionally, somebody reads about something that seems to be a, 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 an isolated incident. But it isn't. There, this is a, a constant thing, whether it is, you know, stabbing attacks or or um, stonings, or um, or or um, bombings, or gun attacks, or the or the uh, one of the latest crazes is, is, is the Palestinians from certain villages are standing on high overpasses and blinding Israeli drivers with lasers. I mean, everything that they can possibly do to kill a Jew, yeah, that's what they do. The one that you mentioned uh, last week, the vehicular homicide, vehicular terror, right? Yeah. Vehicular terror, every type of terror possible is um is the call of the day so so in any event it began on friday afternoon before shabbat with the, with a highly this this operation called uh, breaking dawn was began with a highly precision direct strike onto a, an apartment building i think it was the third or fourth floor apartment in a building in gaza city in which the islamic jihad chief was killed and it was amazing it was uh, it was a uh it was a targeted assassination, just like America, who took out Zahari, mm -hmm. right? right? Which was like, which was like a, a, the pride of President Biden. Yeah, we will find you know, no matter how long it takes. Right, Zahari was uh, bin Laden's bin Laden's assistant. He was his yeah. second in command. He basically uh, went into self exile and hiding from uh, uh, Afghanistan when the the U.S. troops were there. But when they left. He he went back, and I believe he was living uh, openly and peacefully. Uh, peacefully, he was living openly, and I think he was taken out by an American drone while he was sitting on his porch. Yeah. So America does that. America does that. That's what the IDF did to this, um, to this leader. And he, here, Jim, I got to tell you the unbelievable thing, and people can see this if they look for it in, in Israeli, um, news media platforms like the Times of Israel. This amazing video that was released, um, wherein you you see and hear the you you see and you hear the conversation between the pilot between the pilots and the commanders and everyone that was responsible for this operation, who delayed this targeted assassination, not once but twice because they saw ch children were playing, yeah, in in the proximity of the building, and so they they put it off right. And then, and this is so important, and I'll bring up again later why it's so important. And then, so 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 he was taken out, and then this predictable response of rocket attacks into Israel, but into populated areas, right, and towards Tel Aviv and Jerusalem as well. And by the time it was finished, by the time this Egyptian um, brokered uh, ceasefire went into effect, and of course. You know, a good twenty minutes after the ceasefire, they kept on firing rockets. That's always how it is. So 97% success rate was attributed to the Iron Dome. Uh, so uh, uh, in terms of, uh, uh, in terms of um, effectiveness. Um, effectiveness of destroying the missiles midair, right? Mm -hmm. And the main thing is about this operation is that Israel took out key figures. Uh, one thing that's important to, to mention again, uh, in addition to that, to that um, IDF, uh, video that was released showing that you know th that uh, uh, the 
uh, action of the of the um, drone of the missile strike against the Islamic Jihad leader was delayed because of children. So too, the IDF released video showing video evidence showing that 15 children in Gaza were killed by Palestinian rockets that misfired. Yeah. 15 children were killed by uh, failed launches, right? And and that is so amazing because of things like uh, an Al Jazeera headline. Uh, where is it? I got to find it. It was an Al Jazeera headline that said something like... Um, um, fifteen children in 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 Gaza killed as as Israel strikes Gaza. Right. <laughs> the headline was as Israel strikes Gaza, and not and not. Um, oh, here it is. Six Palestinian children die as Israel attacks Gaza. That's uh, that's Al Jazeera um, showing off their creative writing skills. And and then it had been established, and it was already you know that video from the the IDF had already been seen by major news outlets, and that's why the New York Times didn't have a front page about the Palestinian children that were killed by Islamic Jihad rockets because it wasn't Israel that killed them. So what's mm -hmm. the point yeah. of, of talking about it if it wasn't Israel who killed them? In any event, so it was it was um, an important operation in which, again, Israel claims to have eliminated the entire military leadership of Islamic Jihad in Gaza within these three days. And and Israel saying that, you know, Lapid, acting prime minister, saying Israel will never apologize for protecting itself, but yet stressing that special attention, as we've just pointed out, was paid to minimize Gazan civilian casualties. Anyway, the thing is, Jim, that uh, it, it goes on and on like this. It, it, it really does. And the, and the difference that is that people should understand that this is all about Iran. And the head, some of the headlines during this whole period were so laughable that if they if they weren't just totally pathetic, I, I don't know what we would say. But you know, we, we're talking about the United Nations Security Council, you know, calling urgent urgent uh, session over what's going on, and 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 Russia urging restraint, Russia earning urging Israel to to uh, restrain itself. And what what was it that you were telling me about? About Pelosi, her trip to Taiwan. So China claimed that was an act of war. I mean, she she gets off the plane and they launch an armada of, of Chinese ships. They they put they put air support, you know, into action, and yet we have what close to now a thousand rockets rain down over <laughs> the nation of Israel. President it's Biden said that he was that he was very proud of the Iron Dome. Yeah, uh, he did say you that, know, be, which he allows fair. us to have. Yeah, he did. Well, no, not fair. to be fair. Excuse me. I don't think that's fair. And I'll tell you why. Because if it wouldn't be for the <laughs> fact that America pressured Israel to exile 10,000 righteous Jews and to and to give away, not to give back, to give away the Jewish communities of, of the Gaza Strip, Gush Katif, in, mm -hmm. in this um, fantastical, illusory peace deal that never was, mm -hmm. uh, then we wouldn't need the Iron Dome. What you're saying is that Gaza became a launching pad for terrorism into Israel. This is what's going on today. This is so stark because not only did this separate group that, that uh, was funded by Iran, not Hamas, Hamas wasn't even involved in this. This is why they even. And this was one of the questions that the pundits kept on, you know, talking about and writing about. Will Hamas get involved? Won't they get involved? Is it good for them? Is it bad for them? Yeah. And they sat it out. The Iranians, who are in ordinary circumstances, would call the Palestinians their, uh, you know, their brothers. It didn't bother them that they, they were so sloppy that they killed, their, you know, the children in the Gaza Strip. Um, and I think this because is a lot. it's just collateral damage to them. Exactly. Jim. First of all, first of all, yeah. I'm sure that I'll be branded definitely not woke, and possibly I don't know racist for saying this, but uh, excuse me, but after living here for 40 years and after being in the army for 12 years, I think I have enough right and experience to say that they have very little reverence for their own lives. Well, very, no, very little regard yeah. for their own. Listen, they fire missiles from densely populated areas, but not only that, they fire missiles from hospitals and schools yes. because they know very well that the IDF will be able to determine the missile location, missile, the missile launchers location, and that they will not 
um, they will not fire upon hospitals and schools. It's all so cynical. They use their own children for human shields. This is what it is. This is the culture. Yeah. Am I allowed to say that? Oh gosh, I just did. Oh. I'm there with you. I'm a, we're on the same yeah, page. This this is a, a direct confrontation, really, between Israel and Iran. So we have we have the confrontation with Iran in the north, mm-hmm. in the in the in this in the uh, um, Syrian. Um, front with the Iranian proxies and here yeah. in Gaza as well. Yeah, sounds a lot like uh, we're we're inching uh, closer and closer to uh, the opening of uh, of Ezekiel thirty eight, where it speaks of you know Persia, which is Iran, uh, in a coalition with some other countries coming down on Israel. We we talk about this and we say it, and it sounds like we're saying it and repeating it and. I don't know how else to to relate to any of this other than the fact that there is a tremendous process of separation, refinement, as should should I call it, uh, um, waking up that's going on. In in by separation, what I mean is that Hashem is using every front in this world, economic, socially, politically, to force people into into making a decision about wh- whether they are on the side of right or not. And it, and it has so many manifestations and implications. There's no way you can avoid it anymore. It's a part of life. Yeah. Even here at home, Rabbi, we, we have the, a stark reminder of that. The political movement in this country called the Democratic Party that will do anything anything to keep uh, the president trump from running again and here their latest shenanigan is a raid by the fbi on his home in mar lago and breaking into his his uh his safe taking all the papers which by the way according to um uh alan uh the the lawyer um dershowitz uh, alan dershowitz says that that president trump had every right to those uh, presidential papers democratic party has weaponized the fbi as a political tool and it, the fbi has admitted that they ha- that they uh, deliberately are are biased in favor of hunter biden in that investigation uh, uh, which has uh, been censored by major media uh, platforms major esta- establishment media and mm-hmm. then, and then you go back to the story of Hillary Clinton, so thirty-three thousand emails and and everything else. And yeah, you know, some listeners may say, "Why are we talking about current affairs? This is supposed to be a, a program about Torah for everyone." Torah is about addressing on a daily basis, righting the wrongs of of the and, world. And not only that, we was, as we spoke about last week, the whole idea of the redemption, the messianic mm-hmm. era that everyone I think is in our listeners are in favor of the the whole idea of the redemption of mankind. It's all about justice. Mm-hmm. It, we 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 spoke about this extensively last week. It's all about relieving the the anguish and the and the misery of those that are exploited. And that's right. exactly what this is all about. We're, we're all being held under the thumb of those that are seizing control, as it was in other times in history. I was going to say, you mentioned uh, Operation Breaking Dawn. So this is exactly what I wanted to, to talk about, having mentioned now the concept of the redemption. So every military operation has a code. It has a, a name, right? And the name of this operation in Hebrew is Alot Shachar, which basically has been translated officially as Breaking Dawn, but it means it means the dawn, right? The rise of dawn. And um, a long time ago, uh, I was told from a, a reputable source in the um, military establishment that the names of the the code names of the various operations in Israel are are basically generated by a computer randomly hmm. i don't know if that's true or not if it is how much all the more so and if it isn't if someone came up with it, i don't know I, I was told that that it's that it's random i don't know if that's true or not is either way it's interesting but this is what i i wanted to say the whole idea of of calling this operation that we that we just witnessed breaking dawn is so incredibly evocative and loaded and suggestive because the whole 
concept of that expression, alot hashachar, that comes from Tehillim, comes from Psalms, and it's something that is uh, expounded upon extensively by our great sages. It is that that expression is synonymous with redemption. Yeah, it is a code <clears throat> for redemption. It, 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 and so that is is so powerful and amazing. And I want to explain to you exactly uh, where we see this. Okay. So uh, first of all, there's a very very famous uh, midrash from, from our sages, and uh, the midrash tells us that um, several great rabbis, Rabbi Chia uh, and Rava and Rabbi Shimon ben Chalafta, were were going uh, on a journey. They were walking in the valley of Arabel, and they saw the Ayelet Hashachar, Shabaka Ora, which means they, as they were walking at night in this valley, these great sages, they saw the Ayelet Hashachar, which, which means the rising of the, of the dawn, which began to break light. And so one of the sages said to the other, Rabbi Chia Barabba said to Rabbi Shema ben Chalafta, he said, this is the way the redemption of Israel comes about. At first, slowly, slowly, and as it continues, its light increases and grows greater. In other words, the dawn, the way that, that, you know, it's first of all, it's always darkest before the dawn, and that's an astronomical fact, mm -hmm. that the time right before, right before the alota shachar, before the, the, the morning begins to rise, is actually the thickest darkness, the, the darkest. And then the light begins to just crack over the horizon and it starts to uh, infuse the horizon with light. And as the sun begins to rise, it grows stronger and stronger. So the sages were saying, this is a metaphor for the process of redemption, meaning that as, as the dawn begins to emerge from the darkness, so too the redemption will come from the depths of the darkness of exile to a great light of, of salvation, slowly, slowly. And so, and the sages continue discussing it, and they say, don't think that, you know, uh, if it's not happening with uh, revealed miracles and very, very suddenly and we're, and we're very, very, you know, dramatically, don't think that, oh, this just, the, it's just happenstance. It's not, it's not the real redemption. It's just happening. That's not the case. They, they say this is not the way the the, um, the the future redemption is not the way the redemption from from um, Egypt took place. And that's the verse, exactly the verse in Isaiah fifty two verse twelve, and it's and it says this very thing. Isaiah fifty two verse twelve says, "For not with haste shall you go forth, and not in a flurry of flight shall you go." For Hashem goes before you, and your rear guard is the God of Israel. In other words, Isaiah is going out of his way to say that the, that the future redemption is not going to be bechipazon. It's not going to be in haste like the Egyptian ex, uh, exodus took place. It's going to be slowly, slowly, slowly in stages. That's exactly what uh, what this uh, this whole idea is teaching us. And you know what the sages say? This is exactly what happened with the story of Purim. And the story of Purim is the 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 metaphor for the, for what we're trying to say here from, about the story of Purim and the redemption of Purim is Psalms 22. And St Psalms 22, it's the title of it is for the conductor, Al Ayelet Hashachar Mizmor the David for the Ayelet Hashachar, a Psalm of David. Now Ayelet Hashachar, it's it's the name of Psalm 22 and it's a similar expression. It's not Alot Hashachar, which means dawn, but it's very very similar. What is Ayelet HaShachar? Some people erroneously translate it as some sort of musical instrument, but that's not what it means. It's referring to a deer. An Ayala is a deer. The Ayelet HaShachar, Jim, you know this better than anybody, because sometimes you look out your window at dawn in your beautiful, beautiful land there in Arkansas. I saw it with my own eyes. You open up your window and you see deer frolicking yeah. just at sunrise, on your lawn, right? I've seen the same thing in Eish Kodesh. And so this is what the sages say. What is this expression, Ayelet HaShachar, the deer, the doe of the dawn? They say that just as the as the doe jumps from place to place, that's how the redemption was in the time of Mordechai in Esther. 
it was a jump from one situation to another situation, from one danger to another danger. And it wasn't just all at once. It was in stages as we read the Megillah, looking like all these stages are just happenstance, like separate things. Oh, she invited him to his party, to her party. Oh, you know, he was in, uh, Haman was annoyed with Mordechai. No, it all fit together in one thing, but by one jump at a time, sort of. And so that's the the whole concept of how the future redemption, which is now, by the way, <laughs> it was future when we were in the time of Egypt. Now it's this redemption right now is not going to happen all at once, but in stages, because it's impossible to jump up to the highest stage. It has to come in in jumps. But but the jumps, the sages say, will be quick, and the and one after the other, with very little space in between. That's how the redemption will be. It will start with it from a situation of 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 uh, you know like exile, and it will lift up everything in in these stages. So as soon as I have to tell you, Jim, it's been such a trip. I mean, so much portent, and so I mean, can you imagine? We go to we go to shul on on Friday. It's it's Arab Shabbat. We go to do the lechadodi with joy and singing, even though it's about to be Tisha B'Av. But that's this unique beautiful mystical spiritual dy- dynamic of the fact that it, it was shabbat even though it was shabbat so and then we're told you know we, do you know did you hear that we just went to war like yeah my son was called up this one is saying and and so like we hear okay there's a major strike going on now and of course we're not we're not gonna hear any news over over shabbat and then it's shabbat and already on on saturday night we can hear the news and it's shabbat being observed yeah and we have this this um basically war going on. And then I find out, oh, it's called Alota Shachar, yeah. the breaking dawn. And, and I'm thinking to myself, like, this is, again, and, and I remembering what I was what I was told from an army buddy that um, these names are generated by a computer. Well, I don't know if that's true or not, but that certainly would prove to me that there's nothing random. Yeah. How, how much more so, whether a, a genius thought it up or whether the machine came up with it, the idea is Hashem is speaking to us because, because this is exactly the kind of stage of, of redemption that is in our hands you know, for not with haste shall you go forth, and not in a flurry of, fight, of flight shall you go forth. Hashem goes before you, and your rear guard is the God of Israel. He is yeah. the real Iron Dome, and this is exactly the situation that we're that we're facing. One would have to say that that please God, the fact that this this necessary action had to be taken right at the beginning of Tishbaav, that that Hashem used this as a way to show that he is the, the shield of Israel. That technology could have easily have failed, and yet it went beyond expectations to, dare I say, a miraculous level. I don't see any record of, of out of those nearly 1,000 rockets of any Israeli lives being lost. It was, it was a very, very great miracle. The bottom line is that out of about 1,000 rockets, uh, several Israelis were lightly injured by shrapnel, mm-hmm. or while running uh, for shelter during the the sirens, uh, you know, sounding. But again, uh, as many as twelve or fifteen uh, Palestinian children were killed directly by misfired Islamic Jihad rockets. It is um, definitely a miracle, Jim. It's all it's all a miracle, and it's all again this 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 powerful process that Hashem is conducting that i think affects everyone and it's and it's it's maybe the the most blatant process of of um should i call it wake up should i call it you know uh, you know um forcing humanity to to make decisions about what direction they want to go in the biggest process of its kind in history and we can include so many things whether it's COVID, whether it's the reaction to COVID, whether it's the poli- the, on the political level, uh, in terms of other other uh, government intervention and all all sorts of things, there's something everybody knows that there's there are things that are going on now that are that are powerful. They've been set into motion, and I believe that we are we are seeing signs of this beautiful breaking dawn of redemption, which is not so easy 
to uh to to see it's not so easy to be a part of but hashem gives us the tremendous privilege of trusting us to be in this generation and no one ever gets a test or is confronted with a situation that they can't handle one would have to conclude that the level of prayer nationwide was probably at an all-time high and i think that interfaces very well again with the torah parsha this week uh, beautiful Beautiful, outstanding, because the first word of Parshat Ve'etchanan is Ve'etchanan, which means basically Moshe is saying, I implored Hashem, I begged him yeah. at that time, saying, Hashem, Elohim, you have begun to show your servant your greatness and your strong hand, for what power is there in heaven and on earth that can perform according to your deeds? Let me now cross and see the good land that is on the other side of the Jordan, this good mountain and the Lebanon, which our sages tell us, as Rashi cites, the good mountain is an allusion to Jerusalem, mm -hmm. and the Lebanon is an allusion to the Holy Temple. He wasn't asking yeah. to go to Lebanon. Yeah. And so basically, <laughs> Moshe was begging, he's reviewing the events, and he's and he's explaining that after Hashem told him his decree that he's not going to be going into the land of Israel, he begged Hashem. He wanted so badly to go in, and the Midrash says, you know, this is so poignant and so moving. The Midrash says, that Moshe said, could I even just be a bird like just flap my wings and just fly through and just be able to see it one time. He Anything, anything, I'll do anything to get to go one time. And that was not to be. And the word Ve'etchanan has the numerical equivalent of 515. Right, yeah. And there is this mystical idea that Moshe prayed 515 prayers. I have the in beautiful, beautiful books talking about this. Yeah. And he did not listen to me. Hashem said, it's too much for you. Do not continue to speak to me further about this matter in, in chapter 3 and verse um, 26. And meaning, if you just would pray one more prayer, I would have to let you in. So don't stop now because I cannot let you in because it is not meant to be because it is not to happen. So 516 apparently would have done it. Va'et Hanan is one of 10 words for prayer that we find in, in the Torah. And I was going to mention that uh, one that we we know well, Tefillah, the gematria of that word is 515. Whoa, whoa. This, you know, whole thing leads us to a, 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 a begs, begs a question. You know, we're saying, okay, Moshe prayed 515 prayers. This whole conversation we started because you pointed out that, you know, when we're in a situation like this, all eyes turn to Hashem from whence shall my, my, my help come, you know? And uh, Moshe prayed to be able to come into the land. This was his whole, he felt his whole, his whole goal. And that was not to be. And this begs the question, what happens to prayers that are not answered? Yeah. You know, here here, here we have this testimony that he prayed 515 prayers. Do they, where, where do they go? You know, and, and uh, this is a sensitive topic to a lot of people who feel that Hashem does not answer their prayers, does not hear their prayers. How many times do we hear this from people who are sincere and broken of spirit and they feel that Hashem is listening to them? And uh, the pat answer that that people say, which I'm not saying that it's not true, but it, it may be just slightly insensitive to somebody in a in a in a very very you know anguishing situation is well well we'll say well yeah he answered but the answer was no mm -hmm. that's not the best answer I think the, the true answer to where the unanswered prayers go is that what what Chazal teaches us what the Torah teaches us is that there is no such thing. And what we really mean to say when we say the answer is no is not is not that the answer is no, but that the answer is different than particularly what you thought in according to your perspective and your agenda was best. The answer is not going to come up what you wanted, but it is not unanswered. Meaning, there's no such thing, Torah teaches us, as a prayer that just goes into some sort of void. It just... It just gets swallowed up, and it was, and it was just useless and and null and void. There is no such thing. Every prayer has tremendous power and tremendous effect, and that prayer can be manifest as the salvation of someone else. That for Hashem's Hashem's cheshbonot, his calculations, his considerations are not ours. 
mm-hmm. right? What does Isaiah say? Hashem says, my thoughts are not your thoughts, right? So he has a different way of looking at things. He has his system. And so he may feel, no, this is not what I'm going to do now, what you need now. But the fact that a person opens their heart and is sincere and implores Hashem, that shakes the heavens and the earth. Yeah. And who knows where that prayer goes and how it will manifest and and take form and 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 become an iron dome to someone else or to that person in some other form at some other time because of the merit of of the heart that was in that prayer. There's no question about it that there and, and in that way, and, and it's hard to hear when a person is begging for their life and it's not answered, but there is no such thing as an unanswered prayer. One of the most valuable things that I learned long ago was how to pray, uh, meditating silently and thinking about what you'd like God to do is actually not considered prayer. When Itzhak goes into the field and he's praying, the word there is is actually the word for conversation. Yes, he's actually yes. It's talking to, to actually hear your own voice. Exactly. Albeit barely audible, maybe very, very low. But but when we and and one will ask, well, why do I need to speak out loud my prayer if Hashem hears it anyway? He certainly hears it. But the idea is that by but by, by that by praying, we are demonstrating that we believe that Hashem hears our prayers, and 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 we need to to have that posture. We need to have that ability to to open our lips and to and to address Hashem like we are talking to a, a a trusted loved one, like a like a parent. This is exactly the the type of of um, dynamic that we need to be, feel comfortable developing, and like other things that are uh, demanding spiritual disciplines, uh, requiring a lot of candor and, and self awareness. It's a lifetime mm-hmm. to to really develop. The, it's a skill. You reminded me when you spoke of of uh, of praying for others. We we see an example of that when Avram Avinu moves down towards the Negev. And Avimelech tries to pull the same thing with with uh, with Sarah, like you know, t- sort of kidnapping her and taking her into his mm-hmm. house. One of the things that that Hashem did is He closed the wombs of all of the household of Avimelech of this Philistine king. So what does what does Abraham do? He prays for the household of Avimelech, and the women and the and the and the maids and all their wombs are opened up. And so what immediately follows that event? Avram and Sarah will have a son. The sages teach us that when you pray for something specific to be remedied or healed or brought forth in other people's lives, God honors your request for others by having the same prayer answered for you. Yes. Prayer is, is literally a world. And there's so much in this Parsha, Jim, that, you know, it's so, it's like this Parsha is like the heart of Deuteronomy. And it's so amazing that we have the redaction of the of the Ten Commandments with some differences, which is a whole lesson. There's so much here of Moshe's exhortation. Again, like you are fond of mentioning, where he, where he tells us in uh, in um, chapter four and verse um, twelve. Uh, um, Hashem spoke to you from the midst of the fire. You were hearing the sound of words, but you were not seeing a likeness, only a sound, and. and goes on in great detail to warn the people of Israel again that there's no image whatsoever. There's no representation of Hashem ever. And preeminent in this Torah portion is Shema Yisrael. Mm-hmm. Now, in our video this week, God willing, uh, we're, we're going to be talking about the Shema in a different context completely, in a different direction. But I, I want to just mention regarding Hero Israel that um, it appears in this Parsha for the first time but actually, according to Midrash, it was said much earlier. And this is really amazing. <clears throat> according to Midrash, even though the Shema appears here, it was said by Jacob. It was said by Yaakov. Uh, we, according to Midrash, twice, really. One is in Genesis 46, 29, when he was reunited with Yosef, and they, and they were embracing so Torah says there in that verse 4629 that Yosef was crying. But it doesn't say that Jacob was crying after they were reunited for after so many years. And Rashi brings there the idea that that Jacob was saying Shema. Amen. 
And so on 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 the surface level, it sounds kind of kind of strange, you know that you know like what he's like. I understand he's a very religious man. I understand he's very devoted to his times of prayer, but like he's being reunited with his son now for the first time in twenty one years. And like this is now of all times, I understand he had to say Shema twice a day, but now of all times he's choosing to say Shema while he's you know hugging Yosef. But actually, it's the deepest thing in the world. It's it's this is so profound. This is why we have to really appreciate the incredible ideas that our sages are communicating to us through these lessons. Is that Yaakov he was saying Shema because this is the secret of Hashem's oneness. He, he's reunited with Yosef. He sees that Yosef has not changed. He still is the same person. This is the living Shema, Shema Israel, that everything comes back to the total oneness of Hashem. And then later in Genesis 49, when Yaakov is on his deathbed and he's going to be giving the blessings to all his sons and he was about to reveal to them everything that was going to happen until the end of days, but it was taken away from him. You know the famous lesson, Jim. Yeah. It was taken away from him, and he was concerned that maybe there was some sort of a blemish in one of his children, and and instead he gave them the blessings. And according to Midrash, when, they, when the boys saw that he was perplexed because he lost the prophecy, they said to him, Shema Yisrael. We are are the the Hashem that you believe in. We believe in in Hashem. Hashem is one. This is just the Midrashic background, which is very significant. But the idea is, like you mentioned, the whole idea of how to pray, right? So actually, when it comes to the Shema Yisrael, do you know that there are literally hundreds and hundreds of kavanot? There are hundreds and hundreds of powerful intentions and mm-hmm. meditations that one should have in mind when orally reciting the Shema because it's such a tremendous foundation and bedrock of everything that we believe in is of Hashem's oneness. But yet, even though there are literally hundreds of powerful meditations that one should, hopefully that we have a goal of familiarizing ourselves with when saying Shema, again, Rashi cites the most important kavanah of all. He says on the verse in Deuteronomy six, he says he says the most important intention of all is, is one thing. What does it mean that Shema Israel here is hero Israel, which meaning which means the spiritual essence of a person, right? Hashem Alokenu, Hashem who is who is our God, Hashem Echad, is one. Or I love the art school translation, which is that he's the one and only. Mm-hmm. But Rashi says what it really means is Hashem Elokeinu, Hashem is our God who one day will be recognized as the one God by the entire world. In other words, in this one statement of Shema Yisrael, which everybody knows is the Jewish declaration of faith, Rashi is indicating to us that this is the perfect prayer for the Noahides. This is the perfect prayer for the whole world because the whole intention of Shema Yisrael is that it will be declared in unison one day by the entire world. Right. That all of all humanity will recognize that there's only that there's only one God. Yeah, you know, we often hear the the phrase uh, spoken uh, in in relation to the uh, the service of, of of Israel, specifically the service of the heart. And the sages teach us that the service of the heart is prayer. And I was reading a commentary that that I thought was so relevant for this this parsha, and it was the idea that you can the the sheen. In the word Israel, uh, it, it is pronounced with uh, the S sound. But if you turn the sheen into the the sh, the sha sound, you have the word Yashael, yes. which means straight to God. Straight to God, exactly. And I think that is so stunning when you think about it, because the people of Israel, the Jewish people, this nation, they will be the vehicle by which the prayers of the nations will go straight to God. And how will they do that? How will Israel be um, instrumental in that? Building a house of prayer for all nations. But I'll see you and raise you. Please. I'll see you and raise you. <laughs> Just to say that that I, I, and I've said it recently to a lot of people, I deeply encourage everyone to say Shema Yisrael. I said it in Zoom classes. I've communicated it to people. Shema Yisrael is the prayer, the universal prayer, and it's Yashar El. Mm-hmm. 
It's straight to God for everyone who wants to take a stand. As we said, this is the time for taking a stand. There's a lot of gods in the world, Jim, a lot of false gods, a lot of idolatry, a lot of illusion, a lot of uh, very, very dark, uh, very, very unclean worship of all sorts of things, including the self. And the idea is that Shema Yisrael is the declaration that there is nothing in this world but Hashem. Again, I hope our listeners don't uh, begrudge me bringing up Gematria because I think there are so many lessons that are that are uh, sort of encoded in Gematria, and that's the so-called Jacob's Ladder. And that word for that apparatus, Sulam, is unique in that it only appears in the Torah in that one particular place when he has the dream. Uh, the Gematria for that word is 136, and which is the gematria of the word kol, of your voice, wow. which which shows that, that you have to speak out loud to go up the ladder, if you will. Right. Yeah. And, and it also alludes to the temple. And, and I'll tell you how the temple fits into this also, Jim, according to all the, the, the prophecies. The idea is this. Even now, if someone would ask me, you know, there's different types of prayer. There's private prayer. There is meditation. There is solitude. Uh, and that's so important to be able to develop that comfortability, that the comfort zone that I can sit by myself and I and I can talk out loud to Hashem and I'm not embarrassed and I'm not talking to myself because Hashem is listening. That's private prayer, which is very powerful. But then there's communal prayer, right. which is also very, very powerful. Exactly. Communal prayer is very, very powerful. Let's say I just teach that it's communal prayer that has the power to rip up an edict that was written in heaven, you know, the community has a tremendous amount of power. And so simply put, the the vision of the perfection of communal prayer is, is the, the temple. Of course. And it's it's literal, it's literally I'd like to teach the world to sing because it's yeah. I know we date ourselves because what it is <laughs> is that it is this idea of the of the whole world coming together and praying together to Hashem. That is exactly what Isaiah sees when he sees all the nations coming to the temple. That is the place of prayer. Solomon said it. When King Solomon dedicated the first temple, and in Kings chapter 6, he said, also the stranger who comes from afar away and turns and faces this place, it's about a portal. It's about, it's you can pray anywhere, and you can you can raise your voice anywhere, but it's about the belief of knowing that there is unity in the family of man and that, and that Hashem wants us to be able to address him. There is another word for prayer that is related to the word atar, which is a pitchfork. And exactly. I, this I find this... I'm so happy that you brought this up because this is one of the most beautiful teachings. If I'm if I'm understanding the metaphor, pitchfork you you stick it into the grains and the hay and you move things from one spot to another, or you you churn them and overturn them. You're you're literally using this as an instrument to to effectively change the grains and to move them to another spot. Prayer is like that. It moves your heart and your thoughts in alignment with God's. And it changes, it changes, for instance, the evil edict. To me, having grown up around pitchforks my whole life, it it's it spoke to me of, of how prayer has to be specific. In that when you've got a pitchfork in your hand, you aim it at a particular place in that mound of, of grain or hay. It goes to the heart of it. It makes the prayer more effective. You're not just mindlessly roaming around, you know, saying, Oh God, please be good to me. You're making your your prayer specific, and to me, the pitchfork is an idea of being specific, of pointing something directly at the spot. Can I see you and raise you? Please, always. I didn't grow up around pitchforks. I might have seen one or two. <laughs> you <laughs> yeah. grew up around pitchforks. I didn't. Wait, I thought you grew up in the movie theaters. The man who raised me in movie theaters had passed away, so we moved out into a ranch when I was 15 years old. Okay, so, so my understanding of a pitchfork is, and here's the thing about opening up your heart in the deepest way. All right. You are aiming, you're correct. You put it into the pile, but what do you do? You stir up from the bottom. Yeah. So where do you see this? This is this is where we see it. You, you're right. It's in Parshat Toldot. It's in Genesis chapter 25 and verse 19, which is the beginning of Parshat Toldot. What do we find? That it says that Isaac... Uh, entreated Hashem opposite his wife because she was barren. 
And Hashem allowed himself to be entreated. This is the translation I'm holding here. Isaac entreated Hashem because opposite his wife because she was barren and Hashem allowed himself to be entreated. But the word, which is unusual, it doesn't appear that often in this context in the Tanakh, is vayetar. Ah. So the, what's what's being translated here as eyes, when, when Yisrael and Rivka were standing in opposite corners because she was barren and they were praying, it says vayetar Yitzchak. Yitzchak, it's translated here as entreated, but the root of the word is pitchfork. So he pitchforked. And what is it? What does the verse say? This is very unusual. Vayater lo Hashem. Hashem allowed Himself to be entreated, and so my understanding is that the reason that the pitchfork is used as a metaphor for prayer is the same reason as the word for tefillah for prayer. Leit palel, Jim. Grammatically, mm-hmm. if you understand the fine nuances of Hebrew grammar. What it really means, to pray, it really has a connotation of being outside of oneself and being able to judge oneself, almost as if it were from Hashem's viewpoint, right? Like, do I deserve this? So it's a, it's a, it's a level of self-honesty. And the idea is that, the like you're talking about the prayer, like, st- like stirring things up and going to the heart of the matter and aiming. But it, it, if, if it is so searing an experience and so real and so confrontational with myself that I am taking this pitchfork as it were and I'm and I am literally churning myself inside out and I'm finding things that I might not like. Yeah. I'm addressing Hashem, I'm looking at my life and I'm and I'm spreading my life out before Hashem and I'm taking my tool of prayer and I'm turning up from the bottom. And that is an aspect of tikkun hamidot. In other words, again, it's always about, psychologically speaking, in Chazal, it's always about the strength to be able to to confront ourselves and even instruct the things that hurt, and that we know that we are that we are lacking in, and to and to take that pitchfork and you know what, I'm gonna stir it up from the bottom, and I might not like what I see, yeah. but that's okay because in order for me to get right to God. With God, I have to really determine what's holding me back, what's going on. And so I turn it up. And when we do that, then what's the rest of the verse? Hashem allows himself to be entreated, meaning that Hashem also stirs up his midot. And if he had decreed that he was going to be relating to me with midat hadin, right, with the severity of judgment, but because he sees that I am willing to, to, to turn up from my insides and confront myself, so then he allows himself to be churned up and the Midat Hadin turns into mercy. Yeah, yeah. Isn't this also, um, isn't, doesn't uh, the Ketoret, the, 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 the incense that uh, was burned in the temple, isn't there a connection between the Ketoret and prayer in that what you just mentioned, all, when prayer, when the person praying goes through that whole process, he brings a purity to the prayers, and like the Ketoret, which which is compounded in a very special way, and all the impurities are free of the ketoret, and it has all of the right components, then when it burns, the smoke goes straight up, like our prayers when they're free of impurities. Amen. You, you know, everything that's going on in, in Parshat Vedchanan, like, like the other Torah portions in Deuteronomy, we can't ever forget that this is all basically with Moshe intensely aware that his death is approaching. Yeah. And so this is his final um, departure from his beloved children of Israel. And, and again, it's it's so amazing because back in Numbers 31, uh, Hashem told Moshe, well, now I want you to take lead the children of Israel in taking vengeance against Midian, and right afterwards you'll be gathered to your people. But that didn't deter him from, uh, uh, you know, from exercising that uh, operation uh, with alacrity and uh, with zeal. Even though Hashem told him that right afterwards you're going to you're going to die. And speaking of the Shema, and I, I just want to mention this. You know, we're talking about the Shema, and as everybody knows, that Shema is a life cycle prayer. It's said every single day of our lives. It's said in the morning, in our morning prayers. It's said in the evening. It's said before going to sleep at night. And also, ideally, uh, classically, it is said before dying. Mm-hmm. If one had that clarity and ability and foreknowledge that one was about to die, one, one also says, Shema, what's that all about? 
really, what is that all about? Why, why a death, you know, why a death? And the idea is that uh, a proper understanding of this concept really, and I, and I do speak about this in our video this week in, in re regarding the great Rabbi Akiva, who was put to death by the Romans and who said Shema as he was being tortured, tortured to death. And I'll speak about that in our video. But the idea is this whole concept really sheds a lot of light in general on the Torah conception of death. The Torah conception of death is so different than that of so many other people because it is literally a, a stage, a process of life. It, it, the neshama never dies, Jim. The neshama never dies. And so uh, for a person who really understands this and is prepared for this, it's like removing a garment. And the, the tzaddikim, the very righteous people who have spent a lifetime in preparation for this and understand that all there is is Hashem, understand that their soul is going to be a vessel for the Shekhinah, for the Divine Presence after death as well, perhaps even more so. And so I think the idea of saying Shema at the time of death is the passage into the wholeness of Hashem Echad, because it's really becoming a part, being released from the confines of the body and being a, a, becoming a part of that entire reality that is Hashem. My teacher of blessed memory, uh, the late Vendel Jones, I still remember the story of his being bitten by a, a very poisonous snake on one of the digs in Israel years ago. There is a, a, a snake translated to English. The Arab name is a two-step because they say this snake is so poisonous that when you are bitten by it, you take two steps and die. Vendel had put his hand on a rock, climbing up to, to get up to another precipice, and this thing bit him. And I said, oh, what did you do? And he said, oh, I immediately began to pray Shema over and over again. You know, he was saved miraculously because uh, they, it turned out that uh, the fangs had gone into the surface of, the, of his wrist and gone back out again. So only wow. the only the venom splashed on the surface of his skin. Wow! Which, by the way, turned turned that skin black, and it and it fell off later. He knew the snake, and he thought, "Well, here we go. The jig is up, and I'm I'm ready to meet Hashem, and I'm going to reinforce my belief that He is one, and that His name is one." Wow! So much more to share, Jim. I think yeah. we're out of time. There's so much more that I, that I wanted to talk about. Let me just remind everyone that this Shabbat is a special Sabbath. It's called Shabbat Nachamu, the Sabbath of Consolation, the first Shabbat after Tisha B'Av. And um, that has very far-reaching implications, as does this Friday, August 12th, is a special unsung day in the annals of the history of the people of Israel. It is a powerful spiritual day. It is called Tuba Av, which means the 15th of Av, and in the time of the temple, dating back to the tabernacle in Shiloh, it was a special holiday, um, which today, even in modern Israel, is, is celebrated somewhat. It's a holiday of matrimony and romance. There are reasons for that. And in this week's video Torah portion for Parshat Vedchanan, um, I discuss the significance of the 15th of Av also. Uh, so I hope everybody gets to see it. Is this and... not also your birthday? Oh, shucks. I wasn't going to get personally here. But, well, yes, actually. <laughs> I wanted insist... to bring it up. I wanted to bring it <laughs> Thank up. Thank you, Jim. Yes. Yes. Tuba Av is my birthday. We won't talk about how old I am because I can't believe it myself. And um, the fact is, it certainly explains my uh, romantic nature. It does, yeah. A man who loves song deeply. Whoever understands the tuba of. I also want everybody to know that this Sunday, there will not be a Zoom class, but we will be resuming our Zoom schedule as follows. Tuesday, August 16th, we will be resuming our class in Mesilat Yesharim, The Path of the Just. And our next Zoom class in Samuel will be resuming on Sunday, the 21st of August. Yeah, I've never heard the word uh, resume ever in a different light now. You're going to resume. All right. <laughs> For what that's worth, whatever. It's worth a lot, Jim. It's wonderful seeing you and seeing everybody. 
Well, you know, and as I say, eye. as I say, at it, my age, it's it's good to be seen. And what about me, Jim? You're I just a mere, you're a mere youngster compared to me, Rabbi. You know. So but you know what they say about people of our age, Jim, not to buy green bananas. <laughs> yeah. We want to wish everyone a long and healthy life, a beautiful tuba of a beautiful Shabbat Nachamu. May we really, truly merit to the breaking dawn of redemption. Wishing everyone love and blessings. Shalom, shalom.